began on, on Sunday morning with 2 Samuel 11, we are actually going to save 2 Samuel 12 for next Sunday. But the story is continuing and is connected, and so we're gonna pick up in a, in a few minutes here in chapter 13. We're actually gonna finish off chapter 12. But it is, it is difficult, and yet, if you were here Sunday, I, I don't know if this was your experience, it was mine after having studied it and then, and then teaching it, as difficult as it was, as it is a teaching dealing with sexual immorality and the, and the great fall of David and, and so much by, by way of shame and guilt and sorrow and pain and hurt that, that has come from sexual immorality in our culture and in our lives, uh, at the same time to hear the word of truth and the comfort that comes by it. And the, the confidence, you know, the, the strength as we, as we read God's word. And that's, that's what the word does. And that's why we don't wanna shy away from the truth. Let's hear the truth. Because the Lord, he calls on us to speak the truth in love. Well, he's already done that. And, and this book that is before us is a book of love given by a loving father. So we are gonna pick up toward the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12. So just get your Bibles open to that place, 2 Samuel 12. On August the 6th, and then again on August the 9th, 1945, the U.S. detonated the first wartime atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you know the story, and the world has never been the same. Four years later, in September of 1949, President Truman released a press statement warning that an atomic explosion had been detected inside Russia and the nuclear arms race was on. That really started the ball rolling. Granted, the U.S. already had nuclear bombs, but once it was realized that Russia did, uh, that, that race for being the world's superpower, the world's nuclear power, uh, really got underway. That same year, so this is 1949, in the fall of that year, a new word was coined that had not really been used for this before, but it was coined to describe the aftermath of a nuclear explosion. You know the word well, it's fallout. Fallout. So if you look up fallout in the dictionary, it is uh, defined this way, the often radioactive particles stirred up by or resulting from a nuclear explosion and descending through the atmosphere. Also, it could be other polluting particles such as volcanic ash descending likewise. So you could have fallout from a volcanic eruption. It is also uh, a word that describes descent, descent as of through the atmosphere. It's also defined this way, a secondary, often lingering effect, result, or set of consequences. Now, after what we read of David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, if you look at 2 Samuel 12 and pick it up in verse 13, David said to Natan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Natan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Forgiveness does not eradicate consequence. Nor do consequences signal a lack of forgiveness as in the story, Natan, the prophet, tells David, you are forgiven. 
David repents, and he does so in a very profound and simple way that we'll come back to on Sunday, but he is told, you are forgiven of this sin. Why? Because the Lord knows his heart and receives his repentance. He is forgiven, and yet the child is gonna die. There is consequence to the sin, though there is forgiveness for the sin as well. Once David's lust we can put it this way, detonated into full-blown sin, the polluting particles of that sin, the secondary lingering effects, results, and sets of consequences descend, as it were, through the atmosphere of David's family and the kingdom. It's fallout. The Bible is very clear about fallout in our lives. And we can easily confuse this. I think a lot of times Christians do confuse consequence from, uh, with, with forgiveness or we say, well, I, all these bad things are happening, I must not be forgiven. Not necessarily the case. You may very well be forgiven of the sin and yet there's consequence because Galatians chapter six, verse seven tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So we're not talking necessarily discipline as much as developments of our sin. We're not talking curses so much as consequences and we need to understand that sin carries its own liabilities and that's on us. That is on the sinner, the liability for the sin. Again, the Lord can forgive, there can be grace for that, and we'll understand that forgiveness much more on an eternal level, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be fallout in our lives from the sin behavior. Ezekiel describes it so well, Ezekiel chapter 18, just listen to this, the word of the Lord came to me, said Ezekiel the prophet, saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you surely are not anymore going to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. So the son is not paying for the sins of the father. However, there is fallout from the sins of the father that can impact and affect the son. So there's forgiveness, but there is yet also fallout. David is culpable for his own sin. However, the consequence of his sin now continues. That's what we're gonna consider tonight. We're gonna deal with the forgiveness. We're gonna deal with the revelation to David by the Lord God of his sin in chapter 12. We'll save that for Sunday. I wanna sit and kinda ruminate on that one Sunday morning. But tonight, we're going forward to see what happens from this. What is the fallout of this? It's not God pinning the, 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 um, the punishment on the family of David, but it is the fallout of David's actions and decisions. Now, chapter 12, again, begins with a divine revelation. God revealing to David that he knows, that he is aware of what has gone on. And man, I wanna do chapter 12 right now, but, but I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait. I'll give you four words though. Then the Lord sent, chapter 12, verse one. So right there, you see God engaged. He's not passive. The Lord sent. 
but we'll come back to that. If you, if you skip on ahead, however, down in verse 26 of chapter 12, because there's an end section. After the Lord sends Natan to David, after David realizes his sin is known by the Lord, after David then repents and the Lord forgives him, but the Lord also deals a punishing blow. There is a, a, a punishing consequence to this. After all that, verse 26 tells us that Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people and he went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. And he took the crown of their king from his head and its weight was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone that was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments and iron axes and made them pass through the brick kiln. I'll explain that in a moment. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now you read that tag and after this incredibly dramatic David and Bathsheba story, after this very moving uh, response of the Lord in sending the prophet and the story the prophet tells and all that, that, again, we'll come back to on Sunday that takes place in chapter 12, you get to verse 26 and you read it and it's almost anticlimactic. I mean, it's a war, granted. David goes out to fight and they win and they come home. But you'd almost think, man, stick that in another chapter because it, it, it seems to be a little less than what we've been dealing with. But I need to ask you a question here. How long has this siege against Rabbah been going on? If you look back at chapter 11, verse one, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Before David's sin with Bathsheba, Joab and the armies of Israel were at Rabbah, and they were besieging the city. Since then, there has been an entire pregnancy and birth and death of a child. Since then, there's been the sin of David resulting in the death of David's son through Bathsheba. We're talking probably at this point over a year that Joab and the Israelites were besieging the city of Rabbah and unable to take it. This is a long-standing battle. And I want you to note that because there are a couple of things. In fact, I'm gonna give you several lists tonight, you know, uh, sometimes I'll just do one list through the whole teaching. I'm gonna give you like three or four different lists. I'll try and help you keep up and give it to you clearly. But here are some things to note just at the tail end of chapter 12. Number one, sin extends battles. Sin extends battles. Victory over the Ammonites does not come until David is right with God. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, is God punishing Joab and the Israelites? No, no, that's, that's not the point. There's fallout, however, from David's sin, which affects now Joab and his soldiers, which prolongs the battle for a people who were not even aware of the sordid affair taking place back in Jerusalem. They're just out to battle. Have you ever considered and do so tonight for a moment, how your own personal sin might extend the battles of other people. 
how your sin might have impact on someone else's fight. Conflicts that don't end, that are ongoing until you're right with God. And you might say, that's not fair. And I would respond, that's fallout. We are connected together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to stand together and to fight together. And when one goes down by sin, sometimes that prolongs the battles of others. It doesn't mean that that God is distracted or that he's deflecting my sin on, on somebody else, but the reality is your fight may be more difficult. Your fight may be more protracted if I'm over here sinning if I'm unavailable to fight with you. And we can spin that all around. Let me make it more clear. 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, put it this way. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's profound. As a pastor, he says, my church, what my church needs more than anything else from me as a pastor is my own personal holiness. And again, you can spin that around for any one of us as followers of Jesus. Your family's most most important need out of you, fathers, is your holiness. Moms, your families more than anything else need your holiness. Husbands, your wives need you to be holy. Wives, your husbands need you to be holy. Brothers and sisters, wherever we are in life, my personal holiness affects other people and my sin affects other people. And they may experience the fallout simply because of what I've done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I've shared with you before, he's not talking about being disqualified from salvation. He's talking about being disqualified from the very message he preaches. I have to discipline myself, Paul says, because when I preach the message, if I'm not living with integrity, the message that I preach, I'm gonna be disqualified to bring it. I have no right to share it whatsoever. So while God is dealing with David and this sin has taken place in Jerusalem, the fight is ongoing at Rabbah. Sin extends battles. That's number one. Number two, grace establishes the kingdom. Grace establishes the kingdom. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together, Joab says, and camp against the city and capture it, or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me. Joab doesn't want the city named after him. He's a commander. He is not the king. And remember, this is in the spring, or this was in the spring when the kings go out to battle. This is a battle that David should have been fighting in the first place, and Joab has to goad him into coming out to fight. If you don't come out to fight, this is gonna be called Joab town as opposed to another city of David, which is probably a better name. And so he, he pushes David a bit to, to respond and to come out to this battle that he should have been fighting. So don't leave others fighting prolonged battles. If you sin, repent and get back into the fight. But recognize this, number two, grace establishes the kingdom. 
This uh, section of scripture is interesting because the, as I said earlier, the fight against Ammon seems like it's insignificant compared to the sin of David. Certainly not a section of scripture we spend a lot of time on as compared to the sin of David. And yet, it shows us something absolutely vital, and that is that the kingdom could not exist on the merits of David's righteousness. Grace establishes the kingdom. Eva was saying just the other day, she said, you know, I'm not looking forward to chapter 11 because I've really been getting into David, you know? Remember you were saying that I've, really, I've been so impressed with David and his life and his integrity and his faith and his fight, and, you know, and she was going on about it. I just, I've learned things about David I didn't know and, I'm, and I just love David and we're gonna get to the Bathsheba incident. I don't wanna hear it. It's so disappointing. And have you ever been at a church where a, a pastor pulled a David and Bathsheba or fell in some way and the church imploded or split apart and people were hurt and in pain because we elevate and we do that with David himself. This is the man after God's own heart. Saul the soul man, David the spirit man, right? Brothers and sisters, don't ever forget grace establishes the kingdom, not one righteous deed of one righteous person. It's grace. Isaiah 64 verse six says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And if we've learned anything at this point in 2 Samuel through 1 and 2 Samuel, if we've learned anything at all from Ellie, if we've learned from Samuel, Saul, David, it's that the kingdom of God cannot be established by human hands. It is never the merit of the person that establishes, that founds the kingdom of God. We can build on it, but the foundation is by grace and grace alone. 500 years after David's kingdom, in a very different situation, in fact, in a completely different kingdom, the prophet Daniel is called in to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. You may know the story in Daniel chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar has this very strange dream of this statue. And, and skipping ahead to the end of the dream, what horrified him, and it felt like a nightmare to him as he describes, as he, as he dreams it, and that's this, this stone comes out of nowhere and smashes into the feet and obliterates the entire statue, which I think looked like Nebuchadnezzar. And, and he's, what is going on here? What's this about? And none of his wise men can, re, can, can recount the dream or explain it to him, Daniel does. Listen to what Daniel says at the very end. He says in verse 44 of Daniel chapter two, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, listen, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Is that clear? Who sets it up? The God of heaven. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw, listen, that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. The stone of the kingdom that crushes all the kingdoms of humanity and itself becomes eternal is cut without hands. We don't 
we don't found the kingdom. We don't establish the kingdom. It's God's grace that does that. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the grace of the kingdom. He is the establisher of the kingdom. He is the great God of heaven to whom Daniel refers. Now, if any man builds on it, Paul says, on the foundation, on the foundation of Jesus, if we build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Our righteous deeds go through the crucible of life. And if we build with eternal things represented by gold, silver, and precious stones, these things will go through the fire and will be part of the eternal kingdom. If we are intent on building with foolish temporal things like wood, hay, and straw, that's gonna get burned up and will not last the kingdom. So many of our human focuses and successes and, and, and areas of emphasis in our lives, they're not gonna be here. They're gonna burn, man. They're gonna be gone. Precious stones, silver, gold. You know what I think of when I think of those things? People. People. Hearts, lives. The souls of men and women, that's eternal. And we're called to build, but we build on the foundation already established that establishes the kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ. He is king and he is foundation. That's important to know. Because the truth is we are not fighting for a victory. We are fighting, fighting from a victory. We're fighting from the position of a kingdom already established in the name of Jesus and about to come upon this world. Now, one more thing here in chapter 12. It ends with the subjugation of the Ammonites. So let's be real clear about this. Verse 31, David also brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments and iron axes and made them pass through the brick kiln. That sounds a little violent, you know? Um, this is like the Rabbah Chainsaw Massacre. What, what's he saying here? He's not saying, that, the translation makes it a little bit confusing, but this is forced labor. In the, in the Hebrew, as it, he set them under saws, sharp instruments, and iron axes. He, he put these in their hands. They had to work. And when it says he made them pass through the brick kiln, literally he made them cross over. He made them work in brick making. He, in essence, forced them into labor. The Ammonites will now pay tribute. They will now work, and they will remain completely subdued to the kingdom of Israel. Which gives me one more point out of this section and the end of the first little list for you. Sin extends battles, number one. Number two, grace establishes the kingdom. But the third point is difficult and it really requires discernment in our lives. And I mean ongoing discernment. The third point is the kingdom enlists worldly service. The kingdom enlists worldly service. There are things of the world that when rightly subjugated are of beneficial use for the building on the establishment of the kingdom. We can use worldly things. We are right here, right now. Lighting, sound system, comfortable chairs, a church building. These are worldly things that are gonna burn. They're not eternal, but they can be used for the sake of the kingdom. YouTube, 
the internet, our cameras. These are things, and, and don't think that this wasn't seriously considered, every single one of these things. It took us nine years to put lights in here. Why? Because, the, the, well, the discussion began nine years ago. When we first moved into the building, it was brought up, should we have you know, lighting, spotlights and stuff? And we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. Talk about being blue in the face. Even before we had blue lights. Just talk, why did, we, why did we take so long? Because do we really need it? Is it really necessary? Why, you know, is this, you know, there are other things that we could use this money on. And, and everything that we do needs to be subjected to that question, is this of use to the kingdom? Is this truly of kingdom value? Can this be positively used in that way? And, and some churches go too far. In fact, there are probably some people who would say we went too far. And maybe there are some out there who would say what we should do is go meet in a field somewhere and just let that be it. To which I remind you, we were in a barn. <laughs> so, you know, we had no overhead in the barn. But this whole idea of the kingdom enlisting worldly service, this is, this is something worth considering, and it's something Jesus addressed. Luke chapter 16, verse nine, he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And as you're scratching your head about that, he says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, but you can make worldly things in service of the kingdom. Airplanes. People will get on airplanes and fly across the ocean for evangelistic campaigns. That is a use of, of a worldly thing for the sake of the kingdom. And we could go on and on and make easy lists about this, but discernment, the discernment here comes in subjugating worldly things for the kingdom and really testing it before the Lord to be sure this is godly. If we don't subjugate things to the kingdom, things can become our idols in the usage. Does that make sense? So we take what the Lord has provided for us, we use it, but we're always asking, is this of kingdom value? Is this of kingdom worth? If it is, all right, Lord, then I'm gonna use it for the kingdom. But you gotta be careful because we can make it an idol so quickly. Our church buildings can become idols. You guys were just in Europe and looking at some of the great cathedrals that Bill was telling me are really only full because of tourists. And so many of these golden and, and glorious and, and just beautiful basilicas and, and cathedrals in Europe that right now are empty of, of faith. And that's an example of something that was, began intended to glorify God and for the kingdom and yet became idolatrous. It becomes an idol when we take our eyes off the Lord. We begin to trust in the thing. Someone this morning was, was mentioning the, the big uh, Jesus statue in Rio de Janeiro. 
There are people who, upon seeing that for the first time, are just so moved and they fall down on their hands and knees and they just worship. That's a big stone idol. That is not, you know, it's not doing what I think may have been intended originally. Idols are things that we begin to trust over God. God says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So whatever we do, if we're doing it by his spirit, we can, as we see, David, he takes the people of Ammon and he subjugates them, and now they are going to serve the kingdom of Israel. There are things in our lives that we can subjugate for the use of the kingdom. All the while, we keep our eyes on the king, amen? And that's how you do it. Use what he's given you for the kingdom, keep your eyes on the king, and these things will not become idols. All right, chapter 13, verse one. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, firstborn son of David, by the way, Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Loved her. Let me be clear on the word love in the Hebrew. It's the, the root word is ahav. If you've heard of ahava, that's the, the Dead Sea salts and creams and things that you can buy. Ahava is a company in Israel, and, and it means love, ahav is the word love in the Hebrew. Here, loved, it's yahabe in, in the Hebrew. But from ahab, and, and listen, the word love in Hebrew can be used of a spouse. It can be used of family. It can be used to describe feeling toward friends. It can be sexual. It can be desire, that is appetite for food or drink or sleep or knowledge or wisdom. The Hebrew is like the English in that we have this word love and we use love for all kinds of things. You can love a spouse and you can love a hamburger. Now we know that's not the same meaning at all, but it's, it's not like the Greek where they have multiple words to describe aspects of love, phileo, friendship, storgate, parental love, eros, sexual love, and then agape, godly love. But when the Bible tells us that Amnon, the son of David, loved her, he didn't love her. In fact, there is a dark absence of agape love from this story. This is pure, adulterated lust. That's all it is. So when it says he loved her, yes, it's the Hebrew word ahav, but that word in this context is absolutely lust. Verse two, Amnon was frustrated, so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. Okay, that's not agape, right? I mean, it's obvious immediately he's making himself sick over her. Why? Because he wants her for himself. He made himself ill for she was a virgin and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. So this friend is actually his cousin. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, oh, son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And then Amnon said to him, I'm in love lust with Tamar, the sister of my brother, Absalom. He's not lovesick. By the way, no one ever is. You don't get lovesick if you're talking agape. It's very easy to deal with, you know, if you truly love someone, it is for their benefit. You're not gonna get sick over that. Not lovesick the way we use it. Amnon isn't lovesick, he is lust sick. 
Proverbs 14.30 says, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. And that's all that Amnon is feeling toward tomorrow right here is passion. Here's a new list for you. Number one, lust aligns with self. Lust aligns with self. It is absolutely 100% self-centered, not others-centered. This is the problem with lust, is all it wants to do is feed self, regardless of other people, to the detriment of other people. It's all for self. Romans 6.12, that's why the Bible says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. The want and the craving and the yearning and the desire 1 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us in truth what love is, it does not seek its own. Lust is completely self-serving. Love does not seek its own. So while lust aligns with self, agape love aligns with God. And, and listen to what I, I noticed. I didn't say agape love aligns with others. No, true agape aligns with God. He is the love standard. Not what I think even would be best for others. It is not love to say, well, this person will be happier if I just encourage them in their sin. That's not love. That's not love. It's love to say, I'm going to bring the truth of God to this person because the Bible tells us God is love. He's the standard, which is why agape love is the goal of our instruction. Agape is also our sanctification. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the, fle for the flesh in regard to its lusts. It's self-serving. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse three, read this on Sunday morning. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then Peter says, and I love this verse, 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified yourselves for a sincere love of the brethren, Philadelphian, fervently love one another, Agape sate, agape, from the heart. Peter says, every church, here's the challenge. This is what we need to do. We need to learn how to move from brotherly love and affection to agape love. Hey, it's one thing to bump elbow, elbows in the foyer. It's one thing to grab coffee together and enjoy each other's company. It's one thing to sit and worship together and look down the room and go, hey, what's up? It's another thing to agape love one another, which puts everyone else in the fellowship before me where my service becomes others-centered rather than self-centered. Self-centered is lust, other-centered is godly agape. Y'all know this, but in the context of the story, Amnon's got a huge problem and it's a lust problem. It's rotting his bones and so he spills his guts to his cousin Jonadab and then in verse five, Jonadab says to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may eat it and eat from her hand. Who is this guy? Lust aligns with self. Number two, lust attracts a tempter. There's something about lust that it's like ringing the dinner bell for the demonic realm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. that person is self-centered. Whoa, whoa, that person has cravings and desires. 
We can feed that and we can play off of that. And so along comes Jonadab, who is a vicarious player in this situation. Oh, he's not gonna sin. He's not gonna force himself on Tamar, but he's setting it up. He's the one who has the idea and he gets his kicks encouraging the lust of his cousin with apparently no personal consequence for himself and these people come along. And this is exactly what the enemy does. And the family fallout is about to descend. Like David toward Bathsheba, we will see Amnon toward Tamar. Remember what David did? He looked and he gazed and he mused and he took. This process of, of sin, from temptation to lust to sin, ultimately to death. We'll watch now what Amnon does. Lust aligns with self, I said, and lust attracts a tempter, and so in comes Jonadab, tempting him, putting the thought into his mind, giving him a, a way to work out his lust. And verse, uh, verse six continuing, so Amnon lay down, and he pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And then David's into the house for Tamar. I, I, David, I mean, are, are you completely oblivious? A lot of us dads are. He said, go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out from before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes, which she had made, and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. And when she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you, hold me from you. And in that moment, you might go, what is she suggesting? Listen, she is saying anything she can say to get him to let go of her. She is under serious threat and she has thrown out all that she has just to make him stop. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she and he violated her and he lay with her. The word violated is to forcefully make wretched, to humble against one's will. This is in, in the Bible among the most devastating uh, sexual rapes described in scripture. That's what it is. It's, it's, but it's not only rape, it's incestuous rape. This is forbidden by law. Make no mistake about it. Leviticus 18, verse nine, the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. And God spread a covering over his daughters early on in Torah to say, you do not misuse a woman, you do not force a woman, and if this is your sister, you do not go down this road. Remember, sin isn't hurtful because it's forbidden. It is forbidden by God because it's hurtful. And so we see in this 
gut-wrenching story. Tamar pleading with Amnon not to be one of those, she uses two words, disgraceful fools, but it's actually the same word. It's the root word Nabal. When she says in verse 13, uh, or verse, verse 12, don't do this disgraceful thing, the word is, is Nabala, again from Nabal, and, and then in verse 13, you will be like one of the fools in Israel, it's Nabalim, but both are from Nabal, and we're not just talking about foolishness here. In fact, the word in context is godless, immoral foolishness. This is depravity at work. And she calls it out before it happens. Don't do this thing. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. Literally, get up, get out. Number three in this list, lust abhors that which it violates. Lust abhors that which it violates. This is, it's important to note, and I know it's graphic stuff, but this is the sick nature of the sin nature. It, it takes something that is supposed to be beautiful, something God-given. It violates it and then kicks it out as ugly. That's what sin does. So we're not only talking about the situation of rape, we're talking about sin in, in its ugliness as it takes beautiful things, things of the Lord, things that God intends for good, and it twists them into horrible, foolish, evil, ugly things, and then boots it out. And make no mistake about it, Satan has no use for anyone. He could care less about you at the end of the day, which is why Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I know I've been repeating that a lot lately, but we gotta understand that's what's going on here. That's the battle. That's what we're fighting against. Steal, kill, destroy. That's it. That's all the devil has to offer. It's all he wants, and that is sin in action. And that's what we see. Amnon is completely overtaken. His lust which came from temptation. His lust now has given birth to sin and his sin full grown will end in death. Verse 18. Now she, oh wait, I'm sorry. I said get up, get out. Verse 16. She said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the one that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. And then he called his young men or his young man who attended him and said, now throw this out of my presence and lock the door behind it. And if your Bible has the word woman in it, woman is not there. Throw this out. He completely dehumanizes her in the action and in his attitude toward her. He could care less. Lust abhors that which it violates. And in verse 18, now she had on a long-sleeved garment. By the way, that's the same exact phrase used to describe the multicolored garment of Joseph. So this is a, a, a garment given that is, it, it's, it symbolizes a very special place, a long-sleeved garment, and it's even described here. In this manner, the virgin daughters of the king dress themselves in robes. These robes says, I'm a virgin. I'm a pure daughter of the king. Well, then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment which was on her, and she put 
her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He's now figured out what's happened in her sorrow. But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. And this is what we were talking about on Sunday. Sexual immorality is hurtful, is painful, leads to desolation. Why this is not preached in more pulpits in our country, I don't know. I don't understand why we're not willing to be honest and open about the devastation of the sexual immorality that is rampant in culture to the point where in the church, as I said Sunday, we kind of turn the blind eye to it. We, you know, it's not, at least it's not this. At least it's not that. Hey, it's devastating. She is absolutely devastated. At this point, the author, the spirit of the living God, wants us to hate what Amnon has done. Even as you read through the story, I mean, this one, this is rough. This is more rough than the David Bathsheba story because we really don't know the relationship between David and Bathsheba. We know he took her, but beyond that, we don't know how complicit she was. We don't know what really went on there. You know, it's almost by comparison, it's not as brutal as this one comes off. So it's obvious that the Lord wants us to really hate what happens here. So my question to you is, do you? Do you hate this story? Or is it no different than another episode in a favorite drama that we watch on Netflix or Prime? And I challenge you as I have had to challenge myself to think about what are we watching that is just as bad as this? But we're like, but it's such a good show. It's such a, a compelling drama. Is it? Would we watch the story of Amnon and Tamar on Netflix and not be sickened by it? Or would we be more curious? This is, this is, should be of great concern to all of us that the sin nature is often far more curious than it is offended by stories like this. Paul said in Ephesians 5 verse three, sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul would, would, would as it were, grab the collar of Christianity today and shake us and say, why are you okay with this stuff? This shouldn't even be talked about among you or named can you even imagine Paul watching some of the things we watch? Or how about Jesus? I mean, it, 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 it really makes me uncomfortable. Rick, please move on because we don't want to keep thinking about this. We got to think about this and, and think about where we're putting ourselves and what we're placing before our eyes and what we're accepting in our homes as okay. We read this story and in church, we're disgusted by it. But again, if you saw this by a different name, on a streaming network, you'd be like, oh, wow, it was really, you know, well acted. 
Paul wouldn't think so. You guys are awfully quiet. Verse 21. Now then, King David heard of all these matters. And when he heard of these matters, he was very angry. That's it? That's all you get. That's it for David. He doesn't speak of this. He doesn't deal with it. He does nothing. Some have suggested, well, Amnon was his firstborn. So Amnon would have been heir to the throne. Therefore, David doesn't do anything. I think it's something else. Amnon sinned like father, like son. And here is David, and this is what I would call parental fallout. Now, now listen very carefully here because there's something you gotta not miss. David is incapable of disciplining his son because of his own shame. He's angry about what's happened. He's upset about it. But what can he do? What can he say when he took Bathsheba, another man's wife, to himself and then made sure that Uriah was killed for it? How can he call Amnon out for simply following in his father's footsteps? This is parental fallout. Lust aligns with self. Lust attracts a tempter. Lust abhors that which it violates. Number four, lust arrests training. Lust arrests training. Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But how can I train up my child in the way he should go when I myself haven't gone that way? So I can't do anything. So my tongue is arrested. So my heart is arrested. And my response when someone says, how am I supposed to discipline my child for doing exactly what I did at their age? My response to that is how can we not? How can we not? When we may even personally know the devastation of such choices. This is an incredibly cunning tactic of the enemy. This is what Satan does. It's his favorite tactic, by the way. Revelation 12, 10 tells us he's the accuser of the brethren. He loves this. He silences with shame, gags with guilt, and dumbs with disgrace. He uses your shame and my shame and says, look, you, you can't speak to this because of you know, what you've done. Understand that's what Satan says. The grace of God frees us up to train up our children in the way they should go. Whether we were able to go that way or not, Grace allows us to be honest and warn our children of the consequences of sin, even our own sins from the past. And we don't have to delineate them. We don't have to get all into the things that we did, but we can honestly say, I know what I'm talking about. And there may be something in your life that you see a son or daughter, and I'm talking to parents now, but you see a son or daughter, or perhaps a grandson or a granddaughter, you see them going down this road and it's the same road you went down. I would tell you, brothers and sisters in Jesus, by grace you have a responsibility to say, I went down that road and it messed me up and here's why. And here's what happened. Not de describing the sin itself, but describing the fallout. Listen, we can do this. We can, we can share of our own uh, past situations because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Do you realize that, that you can, you can share the past failure recognizing that's not even you anymore? 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you back then. Not now, not now. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And because I live in this newness of self, because I live without condemnation, I can talk about the things that I did that were condemnable and sinful, and I can direct my children in the way they should go. That's not lacking integrity. That's just living in truth, looking back and saying, this is what happens if you do that. But this is what happens if you give yourself to grace now, if you follow the Lord now. Well, verse 22, so David's angry, but Absalom, Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And it came about after two full years, note that, that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hatzor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Two full years have gone by. At the beginning of the two years, Absalom hated Amnon. Where is he now at the end of two years? This has done nothing but fester. This, this unresolved bitterness that is going to lead to death, multiple deaths. He is bitter, he is seething, he is spiteful, he is angry, and he has been silent for two years about this. Biding his time, looking for an opportunity. This is why forgiveness is absolutely at the core of agape love. This is why we as followers of Jesus have got to learn to be a forgiving people. John put it this way, and I'm gonna give you, this is kind of a, a one, two, three, four punch of John related to this situation. First John chapter two, verse nine, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. One who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. First John chapter three, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And first John chapter four, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Bitterness, hatred for a brother, for a sister, for another person, That'll consume you, and, and it consumes Absalom to the point now where he's ready to pull off a murder of his own brother. Yeah, but Amnon deserves it, does he? Yeah, but so do you, and so do I, because the wages of sin is death, right? But are you the one who has the right and the authority to mete it out? Is Absalom the one who has the right now to, to avenge the rape of his sister by the murder of his brother whom he obviously now hates. Forgiveness releases not only the offender, it also releases the offended. So don't miss that, that forgiveness will release your heart as you forgive another, 
It releases you from the bitterness and the seething that we see in Absalom. Amnon, by the way, two years have gone by, he's gotta think he got off scot-free. No punishment, no consequence, it's all good. Did what I wanted to, got that out of my system, and now I've moved on as a firstborn son of a king. Verse 24. Absalom came to the king and he said, behold now, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Go on your way. And then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. The king said to him, why should he go with you? And uh, Absalom says, because I want to kill him? No, (laughs) no. But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants saying, see now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. I want you to note, just side note on this, how often wine is right next to death in the Hebrew scriptures. How often drunkenness is, is paired with very bad situations. I mean, this is throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It is over and over. It is not spoken of well. Wait until he's merry with wine. Wait till he's drunk. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have not I myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And James 1.14 tells us, each one is tempted when he's carried away, enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Amnon is now dead. But he's dead by yet another sin. Now this is a murder. So now Absalom is now carrying this on. You see the fallout as it's descending on the sons of David as they follow suit of their own father's sin. It's not the curse of David's sin on them. It's the consequence, the fallout on his family that is just unraveling before our eyes here. We've got a desolate sister, a bitter brother, a dead godless fool. We have accessories now, both to rape and to murder. We have terrified sons and brothers, and we have a brokenhearted dad. And where did it all begin? I suggest on the rooftop of the palace. That's when this started. And it has continued now. It was in the spring when the kings go out to battle. Why, Lord, why do we have to read 2 Samuel 13? Why is this story here? To teach us the reality of fallout. To teach us not to ignite temptation, setting off lust, detonating sin, and resulting in death. Interesting, with all that in mind, think about how much more poignant are these words in a psalm that was once called David's pocketbook. Psalm 119, verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And David in his palace now, look at his kids. 
and look at what he as a dad is dealing with. By the way, if you as a parent have dealt with dysfunction in your family, welcome to the club. You are not alone. In fact, there is not a family among us that is functional. If you think yours is, let's sit down and take a look. Because the truth is, the messes are everywhere. It is the family of humanity. It is one big dysfunctional family. And note that the very first father created two who sinned against him and then had two sons, the first of which murdered the other. Is God a bad father? Is he a bad parent? No, hardly. But the moment he put the tree in the garden, the moment he introduced the freedom of people to act on their own, sin was chosen. And when sin entered the world, death entered by sin. And so the dysfunction that we see here, and some might read this and go, it's actually not that far off from the foolish choices my own children are making. Be comforted in the Lord. Be comforted in the Lord. You can do right by your children by speaking the truth in love now, regardless of how things have been handled before. But don't walk around assuming I'm the only one whose family is messy, because you're not. Well, back in chapter 13, verse 30, now it was that while they were on the way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. And then the king arose and tore his clothes and lay on the ground and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. By the way, this is the ugliness of gossip. This is not what happened. But this is the word that got back to David and he is absolutely mortified. All of his sons are dead. Or so he's just been told. Jonadab remarkably, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, remember Jonadab from before, who kind of lured and encouraged Amnon's sin? And Jonadab said, do not let my Lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, Behold, because by the intent of Absalom this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. How does Jonadab know this? How does he know that this was the plan? This guy is a slimeball. What a complete sleaze. He knows what's going on. He says, the intent of Absalom has been determined since the day he violated his sister Tamar. Thou for, therefore, verse 33, do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely, all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. This guy is also heartless. This is his cousin. Oh, it's just Amnon that died. Not all, it's, it's, it's cool, it's all right. It's not so, yeah, this has been planned. Now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come according to your servant's word, so it has happened. He knew what was going on. He's the one who talked Amnon into the rape in the first place. He doesn't grieve the death of Amnon, and now he's positioning himself for political advancement. I mean, this guy is about as sinful as it gets. Good news, you're not gonna hear anything about him again. There is no advancement for Jonadab. We will never hear his name again spoken in scripture. And also don't worry that he got off scot-free. He didn't, we know, right? And don't think the Lord doesn't know. And don't think the Lord didn't, in his way, in his time, deal with Jonadab. Verse 36, 
As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept, and also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. And so the house of David is wrecked. It is just wrecked. The fallout of sin is this broken, hurting family. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur, by the way, that's his grandfather. So the reason why Absalom flees there uh, to Geshur is that's where he came. That's where his mother, Maacah, came from. And, and so he has that connection. And David, and, and by the way, that, that place, anyone who's curious, it's, it's up uh, west of the Galilee, Geshur, out toward the Mediterranean. And David mourned for his son every day. Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur, and he was there for three years. And the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted, or literally consoled, concerning Amnon, since he was dead. That's kind of weird. What does that mean? I mean, his, his heart is broken for Absalom, who murdered his son Amnon, but he's consoled for Amnon, because Amnon is dead. This is something actually a credit to David that he always has this way of entrusting the dead into the hands of God. He knows while this was a horrible death and while Amnon, his son, had sinned against Tamar, he knows that as a father, there's nothing more that he can do for Amnon, but you know what? Amnon is in the hands of God and David loves God. And he knows the Lord will do right. And so he's consoled, he's comforted. He looks at the situation and says, I can't, and you're gonna see that. By the way, that same exact attitude of David's you're gonna see in chapter 12 when the child of his sin with Bathsheba dies. As long as the child is sick and alive, David is mourning and weeping and he won't eat and he's, he, you know, he's fasting and, he, and, he's, and he's just broken before the Lord. But the moment the child dies, he gets up, showers off, cleans up, takes a meal, and they're like, why, why? Because when he was alive, I could do something. But now he's in the hands of the Lord. David understands, and he wrote it this way, Psalm 1610, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David believes in resurrection. But wait, but Amnon's a sinner. We don't know where Amnon's heart was, so let's not go there. It's not our place. Amnon may very well have at some point repented, may have had that opportunity with the Lord. We don't know, it's not in the scripture, so again, it's not ours even to discuss. But David recognizes there's nothing else he can do for Amnon, but you know what? Absalom is still out there. His son Absalom, he is now mourning for his son every day because Absalom's alive. And there's still something that can be done for Absalom. We're gonna stop there tonight, but I gotta give you a couple more things before we leave because there are stunning similarities, obvious similarities, because between Amnon's lust for uh, Tamar and David's lust for Bathsheba, like father, like son. There are also several striking similarities between Absalom's murder of Amnon and David's murder of Uriah. In fact, both murders were premeditated. 
David premeditated the murder of Uriah. So did Absalom, the murder of Amnon. Father and son calculating their moves, both of these murders we would today call murder in the first degree. Second similarity, both murders were purposeful. That is, David's was to cover up sin, Absalom's was to avenge sin. But in both cases, the murders were purposeful. Thirdly, both murders were performed by other people. David made sure that Uriah was in the hands of the enemy. Absalom made sure that Amnon was in the hands of his servants. Neither one of them actually got blood on their hands, but their intent and their hearts had blood all over them, like father, like son. You look at Amnon and David, like father, like son. Absalom and David, like father, like son. But let me leave you with something a little more encouraging than a lot of what we've heard tonight. (laughs) There's another father and son. There's another like father, like son to whom we look. Hebrews 11, or Hebrews 1 verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us through or in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory. That is, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The Son is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, like Father, like Son. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him like Father, like Son. John 5, 19, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, these things, the son also does in like manner, like father, like son. Philip said to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father like father like son. And to take it even a step further than that, think about this. The murder of Jesus was premeditated. It was premeditated long before time began. Peter said, after describing Jesus as the spotless lamb, he says in 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown or literally foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before God began the world, he already knew what the plan was gonna be. It was already set in motion. Jesus was foreordained to become the Passover lamb on our behalf. It was premeditated. Revelation 13, eight also adds that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was also purposeful. The murder of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The purpose of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is our salvation. And finally, it was performed by others. The Jewish leadership calling for the crucifixion, the Roman uh, centurions, the Roman guard, and the Roman leadership in Judea putting it into motion. Premeditated murder, purposeful murder, performed by others' murder, although it was by Jesus' own authority. 
because he said in John 10, 17, for this reason, reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. He says, no one's taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Which is why in John 19, 30, Jesus said, to Talus die, it is finished. And he died by his will, in his timing. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We end with Jesus because at the end of the day and the end of this teaching, the only clear way to clear out the fallout of sin in our lives is to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for he who is in Christ Jesus. You come to Jesus. And we know, 1 John 3, verse two, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. We will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Father, that is my longing to be 100% purified. To stand before you and to see you and to recognize for the first time in my entire life that I'm like you, that I'm pure like you, that all the sin truly is gone. And Jesus, I believe, I believe that by faith in your death and burial and resurrection, that you have cleansed me of all sin and that you have made for yourself a people, saints and priests to the most high God. And I believe even among us sitting here tonight that you look, Father, through the blood of the Son and you see a perfect people. We can't even hardly conceive of that because we still know how we stumble. But Father, to be in that place when all of the dysfunction of the family of mankind has been cleaned up and we are before you and with you in the Father's house, sons and daughters, what, what a day that will be. Lord, if, if anything in what we have studied tonight raises shame or guilt or sorrow in, in a parent's heart or in a husband's heart or in a wife's heart, in a son or a daughter, Father, I, I pray that you would turn our eyes to Jesus and remind us of your deep love and remind us of how you worked to cleanse us of all things. I pray, Father, that you'll restore confidence in us that though we were sinners, while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for us and you saved us so that now we can acknowledge, yeah, such were some of us. But we were washed, we were sanctified. Father, encourage your sons and daughters that as we go out of here tonight, we know that we have been made right with you. And Father, by making us right with you, send us back into the fight. May we not uh, be held back by sin or shame, but in the confidence of Jesus, Help us to go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.